We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude and mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, Rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. Bill's going to come and preach for us. We're continuing our series, uh, exploring in a little bit more detail our uh, ministry and mission statements. So we are on as family. Uh, so Bill, come on up. I will pray for you as you come on up. Uh, Bill's going to come and preach for us. Lord, we thank you for Bill, for his willingness to open your word for us. And we know you've been at work in his heart as you've been preparing, you've been speaking to him and readying him to share with us the words you want us to hear. So would our hearts be ready to receive that word, our ears listening, our minds focused, so that we would be transformed by the power of your words, more into the likeness of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Wynne. And uh, it is a, again a privilege to be with you today, especially as we are looking at such a subject. I'm just going to read just to remind us where we're going from Romans 15. Uh, and it says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. And may the Lord speak to us through this reading of his word. Now, I'm something in awe and admiration of those who have artistic uh, talents or creative uh, uh, powers. For one very good reason, I'm totally devoid of them. I can remember at school, there was only twice that I ever had anything notable which was of an artistic nature. And one was uh, cartography. It was a map of Ireland. But if I couldn't do that, <laughs> what else could I do? And, and the second was an abstract and we're just supposed to draw anything that came into your head, which I did do. And the art teacher came along and said, isn't that amazing? Well, I was amazed. And then he said, do you not see that African medicine man in the middle of your artwork? Well, I said, sir, if you say so, I believe it. And it was the first time I ever had anything up on the board. That was the length of my artistic ability. But I do admire people who have that. And particularly if they can take an object which seems insignificant or virtually worthless or useless and produce a thing of beauty. 
especially what do they call today upcycling, isn't it? It's amazing where people will have this, these discarded things and they have such powers and prowess that they can produce something of great worth and value. Classic example of that is the statue of David in Florence. And here was this huge hunk or chump or whatever it was, something of that nature, of marble. And it had been lying there for 26 years, discarded, suffering all the ravages and vagaries of the weather. And the thing looked absolutely despicable. And the city fathers said, what can we do with it? Well, they turned to a man called Michelangelo. And Michelangelo took this thing that had been discarded, disused, almost regarded as rubbish, and he made that wonderful statue which portrayed the spirit of Florence, uh, David, the king of Israel. Perhaps even more significant and important, during the Vietnam War, lots of artillery shells were sent in wooden boxes. And after they took the shells out, they just threw the boxes aside. And a man saw these, and he thought of the many orphans in Vietnam. And out of those things, which were really a means of transporting things of destruction, he built homes for refugees. I just admire such artistic beauty and such creativity. Now, the Apostle Paul had that same ability. And here was a situation which was quite difficult in terms of the relationship between believers, between those who are part of the body of Christ. And what was seemingly a rather prickly problem, Paul takes it up and he presents it in this wonderful way in Romans chapter 15. And it really is a thing of beauty when you see the wonderful way he weaves together the glories of what it means to be a Christian and to be in fellowship with one another and how that is that functions and how that obtains. In a sense, really, these 12 verses in Romans 15 are the finale, the conclusion of a section which begins in chapter 14, all about how believers relate to one another, how they encourage one another, how they build one another up, how they become what the Lord wants them to do. But you know, the Apostle Paul is a realist. He, he knew his own heart, and he knew the hearts of other people. And so it's important when we come to look at a passage such as this, first of all, to, to really set the scene, to see the big picture with regards uh, to Christian people. Now, the church is made up of people who are saved sinners, but they're still sinners. And because we are still sinners, I want to tell you something today, perhaps you haven't been aware of it, but you're not perfect. And we are not perfect And here are these imperfect people being brought together in the very closest possible relationship to fulfill these mighty purposes of God. Well, that's quite a thing. Now, Paul, being a realist, he wants us to see the big picture. Because sadly and tragically, many people don't get it. They don't see it. And because of that, when situations arise, they are sometimes... Uh, at a loss as to know what to do. Paul knows the heart and mind of Christian people. What we're capable of doing, what we can say, the difficulty that can arise between us, amongst us, because of what we still are. And how easy it is for those even who are drawn together through faith in Jesus Christ into this one body, into this wonderful family, can at times have difficulties with one another. And you see that in Scripture. 
You see, even those who were men and women of faith, they had family feuds. Can you imagine? They had family feuds. But of course you wouldn't have that with other Christians. But certainly these believers did. And even friends at loggerheads almost fighting with one another. Here's the Apostle Paul, this great champion of the church, if, if you like, in the doctrine of the church. And yet he falls out with his friend Barnabas. And the Bible doesn't, as it were, gloss over it or gild the lily. It said there was a sharp division between even these mighty men of God. They knew their hearts. And then there's even conflict in churches over the strangest things. Paul's writing to the, the Christians at Corinth. And there were those who said, I'm of Paul. Others said, I'm Paulus. Apollos. And others saying, I'm, I'm of Peter. And then there was a special select group and they said, I'm of Jesus. Can you imagine in a church, party spirits? Well, sadly, that's because we're still sinners, even though we are saved sinners. And then even dedicated, dedicated servants of God, there can be division. Paul's writing to a church in Philippi, and and he's dealing with the wonderful subject of joy in the church and, and so forth. And then he suddenly has to interject really a sad note. And he says, well, those two women, Eurydice and Syntyche, well, will they not agree? Uh, and it seems to me they were so loggerheads, they couldn't even sort it out themselves. Then he has to ask someone else, please bring them together. These are people who had served with, with Paul. Their names were written in the book of life. They had eternal life and they're on their way to heaven. And yet they couldn't get on well on earth. You know the old saying, to dwell above with those we love. Oh, that will be glory, to dwell below with those we know. Well, that's quite another story, isn't it? Quite another story. And so vitally important, our oneness and our unity, that Paul writes virtually to every church, exhorting them, encouraging them, even pleading with them to be at one. He says to the the Ephesians in chapter 4, he says, do everything in order to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know what he means? Leave no stone unturned. Whatever it takes, whatever it costs, whatever is required, he said, you are to work to keep the unity of the Spirit. It's so precious. It's so beautiful. It's so glorious. That we must leave no stone unturned. He, he writes similarly when writing to the Colossians, and as we have seen, to uh, the Philippian uh, believers. So what we can say here is the big picture. And we have to recognize what we are in order that we might be the people what the Lord wants us to become. Now, talking about the particular problem, leaving the big picture, as it were, zooming in to the situation there in Rome. It seems that there were essentially two groups in the church from different backgrounds. There were those from a Jewish background or those who became proselytes to Judaism who had become believers. They were trusted in Christ. They were believing him. They accepted the gospel, all of those things. But they had this background. And there was another group who were primarily Gentiles, not exclusively primarily Gentiles. They didn't come from that background. They hadn't got some of the, the trappings or some would say the baggage of the Jewish people. Now, there were two elements that were especially associated with being a Jew. One was diet, 
and the other was days. In other words, they wouldn't eat certain foods. It had to be kosher, or even sometimes they just eat vegetables, they wouldn't eat meat, because that had been previously offered to idols before it was sold in the marketplace. And for the Jew, that was anathema. In fact, they couldn't understand why anybody who claimed to be Christian would eat these things. But of course, the Gentiles, coming from a different background, they didn't have that. They trusted in Christ, they believed in him for forgiveness of sins. They had the Holy Spirit within them. What was all this idea of days and diets? Whereas the Jewish people, this was a litmus test of whether you were genuine, whether you were the real article, whether you were authentic, especially that you were faithful, because you kept those things. Now you can imagine how the Jews viewed the Gentiles. And they always thought, oh, these people are rather loose in their living. And you can imagine the Gentiles and oh, these Jews, they're legalists, you know. <laughs> they're bound up with these things. Now, what was a secondary issue, a non-essential issue in terms of the gospel, had been elevated to a position it should never have had. And it's so easy for things that are secondary, those things that are non-essential, suddenly become so important to us in terms of our conduct, and also our relationship with other people. Now, when it comes to the Bible, there are some things which are absolutely clear. In other words, there are things that the Bible condemns, and that is apparent. There's no, way, no two ways about it. You are not to do certain things. You shall not kill. It's, it's clear. And other similar things. You're not to give way to anger. That's clear. It's absolute. And then there's the other things which are clear because they are a command. Uh, children are to obey their parents. Husbands are to love their wives. Wives to submit to their husbands. That's clear. But then there's a, a grey area where the Bible doesn't pronounce absolutely clearly. Secondary issue. Doesn't affect our salvation. Doesn't uh, determine our relationship with the Lord. But oftentimes people take issue over these things. And they build them up until they become a barrier, a, a problem, an obstacle for the fellowship between one another. I, I was in the boys' brigade. Uh, it was no, the BB. We called them the bad boys. But I was in the, the boys' brigade. I remember the first camp, and uh, I was climbing up a wall, which I was told not to do. Uh, I fell off the wall, landed on my back. Well, if you ever landed on your back, the wind is knocked out of you. And there I was lying there, gasping, no for air. And our so-called medical officer came along and brought a bottle of lemonade. And while I was trying to suck in uh, the air, he was trying to pour lemonade down my throat. Now, there was nothing wrong with lemonades. It was just inappropriate in that situation. You can understand why I remonstrated with him. I didn't want this lemonade. <laughs> it wasn't appropriate. He was trying to give me something that wasn't essential at that moment. It shouldn't have had that place. And that's the same way it so happens in in Christian church. I'm going to mention a few of these. Uh, They may not apply to you. They may possibly apply to you. Uh, There's the situation with alcohol. Now, I have to confess I don't consume alcohol at all. I'm a teetotaler. 
But when that one church I was in, a man came to me who had formerly almost been an alcoholic. And he said to me, I've never heard you preaching in total abstinence. How could you be a preacher and not preach total abstinence? Now from his background, he was almost an alcoholic. He couldn't understand why anyone would want to touch alcohol. But you see, the Bible doesn't say you should not touch alcohol. It says you should not be drunk. I said to him, we have to be biblical. I said, you're trying to put alcohol in a position the Bible doesn't give to it. And that's why for those who did consume very limited amounts of alcohol were upset by this man, and he was upset by them. And there was a danger of division. These sort of things. It comes to um, certain leisure activities. How we might use Sunday. Whether you engage in certain sports. These things, and some Christians take a different, how could a Christian do that? But the Bible doesn't pronounce in those things. It gives us big principles. But it doesn't say that that's right. But oftentimes people elevate those things in terms of it. Even more importantly, perhaps versions of the Bible. I remember going into a church the first time I'd been in, and the person asked me, he said, do you read the authorized version? Well, I was brought up in the authorized version. But he was saying to me, you can't be here if you read any other version of the Bible other than the authorized. Remember when we SGA produced a new Bible for Bulgaria? In the Bulgarian language, it was revision of an old version, a very good version, which had been brought into being. And the lady said to me, is it based on the authorized? And that was in Bulgaria. And I tried to explain to her, I said, they don't have these in there in the Bulgarian language. And they don't have superfluity of naughtiness. And they don't talk about corns of wheat. <laughs> no grains of wheat, but not corns of wheat. But she thought this was a test of authentic Christianity. That, that all versions should be based on the authorized. Now I was brought up and I had no qualms about it. But I couldn't say that the authorized is a test ultimately of whether a person is genuine or whether I have fellowship with them. No, none of these things. Types of hymns, forms of service, dress. Now, I can't understand why anybody wouldn't wear a tie. Can you imagine? It's <laughs> all respectable spiritual men should wear a tie. <laughs> no, that doesn't come in. It's what's in our heart rather than what's around our neck. But, but sometimes these things happen. And there's a tendency to elevate them to such a position that they then become a barrier to oneness. The oneness to which God has called us when we came to Christ. That closeness into which he's brought us when we embrace the Savior. That, that's, that's the thing that matters. And these things can get in the way. Now the question is, how do we respond to such situations? How do we approach people who are of that nature, either on one side or other of the arguments? Now, if you read through these two chapters, there's a word that becomes apparent, becomes apparent uh, very easy. Look at verse 7 of verse 15. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Accept or receive one another then. In the 14th chapter, verse 14, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling. And then it goes on, if he's accepted by God, 
then he shouldn't be rejected. And so this word keeps coming up again. It's a very strong word. It doesn't just mean to say um, reluctantly receive them, anything like that. Or just, well, acquiesce in a measure. It means to welcome, to affirm their rights to be part of the people of God, to reassure them that they are the people of God, whichever side of the argument seemingly they uh, they are. Do you remember the old song? Consider yourself one of us. Consider yourself one of the family. And that's Paul's approach. Yes, those who are these hypersensitive con- consciences, consciences uh, and they're uh, always picking up on things and, and those who just say, oh, these are just legalists, don't bother with them. They are to be welcomed. Each are to be received. All to be embraced. And just a few times this particular word in use in scripture I think will help us to see the strength of Paul's terminology and the depth and the passion of his feeling regarding that. Remember, verse, Acts chapter 28, Paul had been going to Rome. We heard about that today. Uh, during the course of it, there was a shipwreck. And we are told the islanders, that's uh, the islanders of, of Malta, showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it, uh, it was raining and cold. In other words, these people in the island saw these bedraggled, shipwrecked people. They had to treat them with open arms, open hearts, and an open home. We are to accept one another, receive each other with open arms, open hearts, and open homes. Another illustration of it is found in terms of uh, in the letter to the Philemon. There was a slave called Onesimus. Now, in those days, a slave was the exclusive property of, of his owner. He had no rights. His owner's rights were absolute. And the owner could do whatever he liked with him. And there would be no consequences. No, nothing would happen to him. And Onesimus ran away. A slave running away. He meets with Paul as converted. And Paul sends him back to his owner. I wonder how Onesimus felt. I've run away. I've broken the law. I've been unfaithful. I wonder what's going to happen to me. And Paul says, receive him back as if you were receiving me. You know the way you welcomed me? You know the way you took me to your heart? You know the way you embrace me? Receive, accept Onesimus in the same way. And perhaps most strikingly of all are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ where he speaks about going to prepare a place for them and he says, I go to prepare a place for them. That's where I am. There I'll receive you. Oh, what a welcome awaits believers in heaven. What a welcome. It's the same word. Receive one another as Christ will receive us in that great day. Welcome one another as the Saviour who loved us 
and gave himself for us and laid down his life for us and shed his blood on our behalf is going to welcome us. We're very precious to him. And in that day he will show it in a wonderful way. Now we are to accept one another. We are to receive each other. We are to welcome one another in the same way as Christ was uh, as Christ accepted. Verse 17, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. I tell you, how can we refuse to accept anyone if Christ is willing to receive us and willing to welcome them? How can we hold at arm's length anyone whom Christ embraces? Have we any rights? Have we any reason? No. Listen to the words. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. That's what is set before us here. In other, other words, our response is to mirror Christ's reaction to us, our response to others. is to mirror that, the way that Christ received us. And here's a pattern. Uh, do you remember in, on the television, there was a, called a master class, and there were great singers and uh, virtuoso uh, musicians. And they would give a master class it was amazing. I remember Pavarotti was given it. Can you imagine being in Pavarotti's class? And he had these, these students, tenors. And they just signed one note and Pavarotti says, no, 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 no. And then he would do it. He'd do it again. And they would say, no, 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 no. He's Italian after all, isn't he? And they would do it again. Not one of them objected to Pavarotti putting them right. It was a master class. And here's the master's class for us. Receive others as I received you. Welcome others as I welcomed you. Take others to your heart as I have taken you to my heart. There shouldn't be any objections to that. There shouldn't be any, any objections. Uh, I worked in Hornwells. You know where they built this, the Titanic? I remember telling the students in Moldova, uh, you know, about I worked in Hornwells where they built the Titanic. And they said to me, what was it like to work on the Titanic? <laughs> so I said to him, the passing of time has not been kind to me, but I'm not that old. But I remember there was what was called the quality control department. And in that quality control department, they had specifications. And each thing that was manufactured was sent through there. And it had to be the right material, it had to be the right side. All the gauges had to be correct. There it was, they had to stick to the spec. If it didn't, it was rejected or it was returned. Here's the Lord Jesus, our Saviour, setting out a specification Receive one another as I have received you. I wonder the way we relate to others, to read to all of the Lord's family with whom we meet, 
does it meet with the specification? Or would the Lord have to say, reject it? Reject it. Or could he say, well done, good and faithful servants. Well done. Here it is. We are to be that in terms of our fellow believers. There's not to be judgment or condemnation. That doesn't mean to say we don't pray about situations that we have with others. It doesn't mean that we don't say something. But what it means is that we don't come with a censorious spirit with regards, regards to them or, or, or be their judge. There's only one who's their, our judge and their judge. There's only one who's their master and our master. We're not masters of others. And this is what the Apostle Paul is about. This is the big principle, acceptance. Now I just want to mention very briefly some of the basic sub-principles that underpin and encourage that. Look at verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. And the first thing is to bear with them. Now this particular Greek word can mean endure and some of the Lord's people have to be endured. <laughs> it can also mean tolerate. And sometimes we have to show toleration. I remember one man left a church and joined another church. And an elder from the first church met an elder from the second church. And he said, how are you getting on with so-and-so? And he said, the Lord is teaching us a lot of patience. Sometimes we have to bear. But it means more than that, positively. It means to support and to carry. With the view to bringing, carrying them to a better position. This is why we are, we are told, we say, each of us should please our neighbours for their good to build them up. To build them up. So there's this thought of not pleasing ourselves getting our way, forcing our perspective upon others, but to build them up, to edify, not crucify those in Christ. And it it brings this out here, for even Christ did not please himself. For for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, verse 3, the insults of those insulted you have fallen on me. Difference, there's a cost in bearing with other people. There's a price to be paid in bearing with each other. But I tell you, it's worth it. It's worth it. Just think of the price that he paid to bring us to himself. Just think of the cost. payment he made to bring us into fellowship with himself anything it costs us any price we have to pay is infinitesimal in comparison to the price he paid and the blood he shed for our sakes and our salvation and then very quickly not only that uh, here it is. It's Christ didn't please himself. It's to be like him. It says, be biblical. Verse 4. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that 
through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide might give us hope. You see, when the scripture encourages us in these things, it reminds us of our calling to be at one as the people of God, to be as a family. It reminds us of our calling. It reminds us to walk worthy of our calling and not to succumb to the feelings and emotions that arise when there are dissension and there are difficulties. It reminds us of the pitfalls that arise when we are not as one and the consequences of that. It reminds us, in a sense, of what oneness means to our Lord Jesus Christ there when he's going to his passion and he's praying in the garden for the disciples then and for all God's people. That you may be as one as the Father and I are one. That you may be one, that you may be one. And in order to fulfill and comply with that high and holy calling, you know, it brings us up with a start and helps us to see what we should be. Let the scriptures guide us and govern us. Let them inform us and transform us in, in these situations to see what's at stake and what's involved. And then be enabled. Here Paul's praying, may the God who gives endurance and peace, he's talked about what's in scripture, now here's the one who makes that possible, gives endurance and encouragement, give the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus has. Be enabled. We're not left to our own devices. We're not reliant upon our own resources. We're not, we're just trying to muster up something within ourselves. We're, we're seeking the help of heaven and the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit. Some of you might have heard the famous Keswick preacher of a former year, G.B. Duncan. And George Duncan said when he was a young minister in a church, and he had one of those cars where he spent more time under it than in it. I don't know if you ever had one of those cars. Well, he was like that. And the lady in the congregation had a number of cars and said, Mr. Duncan, you can have my car. You have the loan of my car as long as you need it. It was two liter. He didn't even know there were such cars having two liters. And uh, a week later, the lady saw him in the old car. And he said, I wonder what's happened. I wonder what's happened to my car, you know. But she never said anything. And a week later, she saw him under the old car. And that really raised her suspicion. What's happening to my car? And then finally she said, Mr. Duncan, where's my car? Is it okay? She says, yes, it's in the garage. There's not a, there's not a speck of dust on it. There's not a scratch on it. She said, what's it doing in your garage? And then he went a bit coloured and she was said, I couldn't afford to run that car. She said to him, Mr. Duncan, when I said run my car, and use my car, I meant at my expense, not on your resources. Not on our resources. Not at our expense. But by the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of unity, the, the one that brings community, the one that gives us a common life that draws us together, the one who glorifies Christ in our midst. That's our resources. Dear friends, let's be enabled to be the people of God. And really what it's saying, be a believer, be what you are, become what the Lord would have you be. Uh, 
years ago, when there was, wasn't just a, a British, whatever it is, British Airways, it was BOAC and BEA. BEA was Europe and Ireland, and the other one was America and these other places. And they used to have in the centre of London a terminal, Cromwell Road. And so you'd fly to Heathrow, and then a bus would bring you down, and then you got your luggage in Cromwell Road. And I, I had my luggage, and I was standing. And you know when you get an impression there's someone nearby, and I glanced at the lady there, and she was pointing at me, and was doing this and pointed to her cases. And anyway, I thought it must be someone else, so you, you turn away and look round. But I glanced again, only this time she was waving more vigorously and telling me to come here and pick up her cases. Well, I, th- I thought, does she think I'm some sort of Irish navvy or something? <laughs> And then I looked up. I was standing, and a sign above me said taxi. And she thought I was a taxi man. I wasn't. But you know, dear friends, we are Christian if we know the Lord Jesus Christ. We're the Lord's people. We're part of the body of Christ. We're the family of God. We're the household of faith. Let's be what we are. I must close with this. Uh, I don't suppose many of you would have ever read this book, The Spirit of 58. I don't think you have. It was the year Northern Ireland got to the quarterfinals of the World Cup. And it was so such a big thing. Never been there before. But the amazing thing is they had the smallest squad, only 17 players for, all the, for the group stage and the knockout stage. Can you imagine only 17 they had the smallest squad. They had the least number of population of the 16 that were playing in Sweden. A population of one and a quarter million to choose from. And there was uh, <coughs> Brazil and England and Germany and Argentina. And Northern Ireland was drawn in the group of Germany, West Germany and Argentina. Can you imagine? It? They called it the group of death. And everybody said... Uh, there's no point in unpacking. You'll be on your way. But to get to the final, they defeated Italy and they'd beaten England. Uh, and they, they had a spirit within them. They had a spirit within them. And the West German, they, they played West Germany and drew two each and then beat Czechoslovakia twice and went into the quarterfinals. The thing is, they only had nine fit men to play in the quarterfinal. <laughs> But the West German manager hit the nail on the head. You know what he said? There was no team played together like Northern Ireland. We never face another team with the team spirit and the togetherness. He said, every one of our players were better than theirs. How was it that they almost beat us? He said, they had the same heart, the same spirit, and the same will, and the same purpose. And the same design. And that's why this little team, hardly heard of before, was in the quarterfinal of the World Cup. Dear friends, let's pray we'll have the same heart, the same spirit, the same will, the same purpose, the same mind, for the glory of the one Lord. Amen. James.